Scripture reading this morning will be from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Good morning. Good morning, Zoom folks. Today I'm going to be preaching from Romans 5, 1 through 11, the passage that Randy just read. So I'm going to ask everybody to, uh, this is going to be a little more, it's hard to do textual stuff as deeply without PowerPoint. Um, so, or some kind of visual aid, but I'm going to ask you today, we're going to do that a little bit more today than usual since, uh, since Corona. Open your Bibles to Romans 5, if they're not already there, 1 through 11. I'm going to have you to refer back to that. We'll be going to several places in the writings of Paul this morning, but mainly uh, trying to uh, get, get some things, some lessons from Romans 5, 1 through 11. So, Open up your Bibles or bring, bring up that passage on your phones, and let's be ready to, uh, to observe some things together. Paul says in Romans 5, uh, verse 2, that we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hope. The verb translated rejoice can also be rendered boast. To boast. I think the NIV says we, we boast in hope. Uh, the New American Standard says we exalt, not exalt, but exalt, like, you know, to glory in something or just revel in it. Um, so any of those is a, a fair translation of this Greek verb. Um, ESV says that we rejoice in hope. And so to rejoice or boast or exalt in hope is to have a confident expectation that things are going to turn out good, that Everything's going to be okay. Um, That's what Paul's calling us to. We rejoice in hope. And yet if we look around the world, whether it was then in the first century or whether we're doing that now as 21st century readers of this Pauline text, and if we're honest, we see a whole lot of stuff uh, that's, you know, not exactly the fodder for joy. Um, kind of the opposite. I mean, today we have the threat of coronavirus. We have um, just the tenacity of racism, uh, you know, uh, an unstable economy, division in our culture, um, a, a really significant rise in anxiety and depression diagnoses. This isn't the stuff of joy, I don't think any of us would say, and yet Paul's words here stand. I think 
you know, he, he knows that he is receiving inspiration from the Holy Spirit. He's contributing to the canon of what will become Christian scripture that has universal application across all time and space. And he still says, we Christians rejoice in hope. And the word hope appears three times just in this text that uh, Randy read for us, Romans 5, 1 through 11. And Paul links this hopeful outlook on the future to a positive disposition in the present. So in other words, what we think about the future is a large factor in how we behave and think and feel, um, our psyche, our health, all those things in the present. That those are connected. Um, I think a lot of times we'd like to think that we just live in the present as if it's history doesn't matter and the future doesn't matter. In fact, both of those are always informing the present. They're seamless. Um, kind of makes sense since we serve a God who's timeless, that all of that in some way is going to be related. But we're talking today about how our view of, of the end, what, what theologians call eschatology from the Greek word eschatos, you know, the end or the latter, the, the final things, how that informs the way we live and think and feel and are in the present. And the key word here is hope. This confident joy that comes from a hopeful expectation about God's good future. So what I want to do this morning for a few minutes is look at what this text, Romans 5, 1 through 11, tells us about hope. And I want to suggest, you guessed it, three things. The object of our hope, the power of our hope, and the assurance of our hope. The object of our hope, the power of our hope, the assurance of our hope. So let's jump in. The object of our hope. Read with me Romans 5, verse 2. He says, through him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So what is the object of our hope? He's not saying here, you know, just any old hope will do. Just so long as you're a hopeful person, you're going to be fine. You pick the object of your hope, just hope. That's not at all the point, is it? He's not suggesting here that the focus or object of our hope is our choice or doesn't matter. No, he says that it's, a, it's an expectation of the coming glory of God, verse 2. Our hope is in the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of, here's the object of our hope, the glory of God. That's our hope, the glory of God. That's what we can expect and should expect as Christians. But what does this hope of the glory of God entail? Paul's using a Greek word for glory here, the word doxa. But Paul taught, you know, Paul, glory is all over the writings of Paul, everywhere. And if you know anything about the Pauline letters in the New Testament, and he's the major writer of, the, of, of most of the New Testament documents, Paul is, um, is, is very informed by the Old Testament discussion of glory. Glories all over the Old Testament. And if we go back to the Old Testament, there's a, 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 a range of Hebrew words used for God's glory, but especially the word kabod, which we've talked about here many times. And, and this word kabod, which is translated in the Old Testament glory, basically has a concrete sense of, of weightiness or abundance, you know, splendor, plenty, 
uh, it, it translates in a lot of English words because it's a word that has a lot of nuances. But the basic idea is just, it's a lot, you know? It's, it's a bunch of substance, it's weight, it's wealth, it's splendor, it's abundance. It can also have the more abstract sense of kind of, um, you know, the, the upshot of those things. So things like dignity, respect, reverence, those sometimes come from the Hebrew word for glory as well. And those are traits we know are associated with worship. So this is not unconnected to our theme for 2020. And often in the Old Testament, glory represents the visible manifestation of God's presence. You're thinking of his, you know, Shekinah glory descending into the most holy place and that sort of thing. Often in the Old Testament, uh, glory is, is uh, uh, you know, accompanied by some kind of physical manifestation like light or fire or the smoke on Mount Sinai or a cloud that, you know, traveled with Israel in their uh, post-Exodus wilderness wanderings. But here is Paul, informed by all that Old Testament stuff. He's a man of three worlds, really, right? He's, he's a Hebrew. Um, he's a Koine Greek-speaking, you know, Hellenist from the eastern part of the Mediterranean, Tarsus up in, uh, you know, southern Turkey. And, and yet he's also a Roman citizen. So he's sort of uh, a perfect choice by the Lord to be the apostle to the nations, to the Gentiles. And now he's living in the light of the cross. So he's got all these Old Testament texts informing this idea of glory, but now redefined through the lens of Calvary. And in living, uh, in living in the light of the cross, Paul begins to see God's glory as expressed most fully in the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the content of which Paul sums up as, and I'm quoting here from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Let me read that text. You don't have to turn to it. Keep your, if you want, you can, but it's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So for Paul, the content of the gospel is the glory of Christ now, who is the image of God. So it, there's really a continuity here with all the Old Testament teachings because Christ is the uh, he says in verse 6 of that same text, the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. So when somebody saw Jesus, they were seeing in some fashion, you know, to some extent, the glory of God. And that brings all of those Old Testament texts about the glory of God, the pillar of fire, the fire, the pillar of cloud, the smoke at Mount Sinai, the Shekinah glory, all of that is now encapsulated in Jesus, who is the image of God, Right? That evokes, you know, Genesis 1, you know, made in God's image, all of that, Adam, and so on. Um, but one of the main ways in the New Testament that the glory of Christ, I mean, if that's the content of the gospel, what, what can we say about that? Well, one of the main things the New Testament teaches us about the glory of Christ is that it is most fully manifest in his resurrected body. His resurrected body. He's no longer in the grave. He dies like all humans but on the third day he is risen, and Philippians 3 tells us he is now in heaven. Uh, a, a passage that Nick used just a minute ago, or at least alluded to, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Philippians 3, 20 and 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his, notice it, glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The very power that is allowing him to be king, to reign over all the cosmos, is the power that raised him from the dead 
and gave him a glorified body, a glorious body. But guess what? Philippians 3 says he's going to do the same thing for our bodies. So one of the main ways you see the glory of God in Christ is that the grave couldn't hold him. And his literally his body post-resurrection is a different kind of body. Don't make the mistake. This has often been done by Christians who are much more Greek and pagan in their thinking on this than we know. This kind of Gnostic dualism where this is all just a bunch of junk. One day we'll just be disembodied spirits. Not a biblical idea at all. God made stuff and called it good and very good. And if you carefully treat the language of, of passages like this one or 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, Paul isn't really saying you're going to one day be disembodied. He's saying you're going to have a different kind of body. You're still going to have a body. It's a spiritual body. It doesn't just say spirit. Spiritual body. It's a glorified body. Jesus said, touch me. Remember? He actually corrected the idea that he was a mere ghost, as the old King James put it, or spirit, as modern versions put it. He ate a fish. Bodies digest fish, not spirits. And yet it wasn't this kind of body, because it could walk through a wall, apparently. Maybe not because it was less than substantive, but because maybe it was more substantive than that wall. It was more real, more tangible. I don't like the word physical here, but sort of more physical, more glorious, more weighty, more substantive. We can't put too much stock, I don't think, in the resurrection and the resurrected body. Um, so, why is this good news? Why does Paul say it's the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God? It's good news. It's not good news for God and for Christ. They already know it. Not, that's not news. They created the story that they're you know, launching on the world throughout the span of, 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 of biblical history. It's good news for us. We're the hearers of the news. You know, the apostles are the heralds. We're the recipients of the news, the consumers of it. Why is it good news for us? The answer is because in the gospel, God through Christ promises to transform our earthly, lowly bodies, perishable bodies, into a new state, a glorious body like Christ's own resurrection body. And that's really what 1 Corinthians 15, another Pauline text, is all about, right? Um, 1 Corinthians 15, he says in verse 20, to a, a, a group of Christians who were hearing that maybe the resurrection was bogus, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So it's a harvest of resurrected glorified bodies that Christ inaugurated that one day we will all be the beneficiaries of, and that's why it's good news. That's why it's a gospel for us. Christ is going to share his glory with us in eternity. That's amazing. He's going to share his glorious resurrection existence with us in eternity. And moreover, our new resurrection bodies will inhabit a whole new world. The biblical picture isn't just a resurrected body and then we don't know what to do with that. It, it, it talks about a glorious new environment for our glorified resurrection bodies. If you will, a habitat that is fit for a new kind of inhabitant. 1 Corinthians 15, 47, contrasts two representative men, Adam and Christ. The first, Adam, is from the earth, a man of dust. Verse 47, I'll read it. 1 Corinthians 15, 47, the first man, he's speaking in context here of Adam, 
was from the earth a man of dust, literally a man of the soil. You remember Genesis 1? He's made from dirt. We share an existence with animals and trees. DNA proves it. If you, the Bible already said it, but DNA you know, doesn't prove it. It confirms it, I guess, from another angle, right? But man, we're something different altogether. We're, we're sort of the intersection of the divine and the earthy. But Adam was just of the earth, a man of dust. While the second man, Christ, he says, is, quote, from heaven. Two different beings, two different realms. But then Paul says something about Christians. He says, our glorified bodies, our resurrected, glorious bodies, will follow in turn Christ's own resurrection, and we will ultimately transition from being a people of dust, to quote 1 Corinthians 15, to a people of heaven. Verse 48 of 1 Corinthians 15, as was the man of dust or dirt or soil, so also are those who are of the dust. In other words, he represents, he's a representative of a kind of people, right? And as is the man of heaven, Christ, so also are those who are of heaven. So it's not just about, in the in 1 Corinthians 15, individuals, it's about the transition, transition in individuals from mortality to immortality, from earthbound, you know, perishable existence to a glorified existence, but it also is about the environment that's going to be new. They're of heaven, of different realms, of the earth, of heaven. Do you see that in the text? Not as maybe explicit as it is in some other New Testament text, but they're always in the writings of Paul. Okay. Revelation 21. Not a Pauline text, but Squares, of course, like all Scripture does with other Scripture, uh, with all the things that Paul is writing. Revelation 21 basically elaborates on this whole new cosmos that the writer called, John calls the new heavens and new earth, <clears throat> saying that the people of heaven, as God's holy city, are going to, and this is John's visions, they, they, they descend to dwell with God in this new creation forever. Read it with me, or, or, or listen. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth, the one created in Genesis 1, had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So the New Jerusalem, which he later defines a second later as the bride of Christ, which is us, is actually descending from heaven in John's vision to, to do what? To dwell in the new heavens and new earth which is described later in Revelation 21 22 as a, a repristinated, that's probably not a word, but like made pristine again world like Eden. The curse is gone. And he says, this city which comes down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, one of the most beautiful texts in all the Bible, behold, the dwelling place or the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. All right? I want you to notice what permeates this new city, the new Jerusalem, which is sitting in the new creation. Look at verse 23, Revelation 21, 23. This city, he says, has no need of a sun or moon to shine upon it for the glory of God. There's our phrase from Romans 5. Our hope is in what? The glory of God, that precise phrase. 
the glory of God gives this city its light and its lamp is the lamb, Jesus. So glorious, the glory of God is so pervasive in the new world to, where we're he- to, to which we are headed with our new resurrection bodies that it's, it's li- literally what illuminates uh, the world. The world is suffused with the glory of God. That's an amazing picture. So let's sum up real quick before we move on to our second and third point, which will be shorter, promise. Here's summing up what we've said about our hope being in the glory of God. Our hope is this glory of God. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, Paul says. Our hope is this glory of God, which was manifest in Christ, the very image of God, whose resurrection body will reign with God over a whole new creation, a world suffused with God's glory and shared with his saints, who in their own resurrection bodies will enjoy his presence for all eternity. Is that amazing? That's our, that's our hope. We should confidently expect that. We know the script. We have the story. We have the conclusion. Right? And we're going through a lot. Um, a lot of stuff. There's a lot of sadness. Plenty to go around. A lot of anxiety. A lot of worry. A lot of angst. You know, for, for me today, this is July 19th. It's my daddy's birthday. And um, just, you know, another touch of sadness. Um, but I don't face it the same way I would, I don't think, if I were an unbeliever. He's not gone forever. In fact, he's really, be- I don't know the exact mechanics of what happens between dying and I don't pretend to. The Bible has a lot of things. People have been debating that for years. I don't think it really matters much either. Do you, do you, you know, sleep and then you wake up and it's like surgery, you know, five, four, three, two, one. Hey, everything, you okay? You know, like that. Is it that or is my dad no right now? I don't know. I just know where he's headed is the glory of God. And it didn't end when my daddy died. Um, we will be together again. Boy, that's a powerful thing. All right, second point is actually that, the power of our hope. So we've talked about the object of our hope. What does this text say about the power of hope? Now I'm going to run back to Romans 5, and this time we're going to read verses 3 through 4. Here's what he says in Romans 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's our word again. We rejoice in our sufferings essentially because it it puts us in this process that produces more hope. So these next two verses, the ones we just read, have something positive to say about suffering. Isn't that odd? We can rejoice in something that people, human beings, spend their days and their fortunes trying to avoid and outrun. Suffering. You could define human existence almost if you want to be more of a cynical person which I sometimes have a tendency to, to be, you know, I call it being realistic. <laughs> like there's a bunch of junk in the world. I mean, there's a lot of negative stuff. It's not like rosy all the time. Um, one way to define humanity is you're born and you start trying to outrun suffering. You will lose. 
You can do it financially, you can do it through working out, business, income, connections, beauty, whatever. Get 47 plastic surgeries, losing battle. You're fighting a losing battle. Um, and the loss is gonna come pretty soon, actually, in the scheme of things, you know? Um, I know that sounds negative, but it isn't negative, even if you take that cynical approach to what it means to be human, because we rejoice in the very thing that other people are trying to avoid with all their might. So hope is powerful. It's powerful. It actually redeems and reframes suffering. The reason is, you know, we've seen how amazing our hope is already. We talked about that in our first point. Well, our suffering, according to Paul, it only develops the hope within us more fully. It even is redeemed by Christ in that hope, so that it develops within us these traits like endurance and character and integrity, which only serve to enhance hope further. And, and we better have an answer to suffering because suffering is a big part of life on earth. And I think in our part of the world, maybe elsewhere, but I think we maybe raise this to a fine art, at least for a segment of our population, people who, you know, who enjoy decent income and that sort of thing, we, we sometimes act like suffering is, is an aberration, like it's some anomaly, like something's wrong. Um, I was listening to a podcast a week or two ago, and the speaker was referring to her experience in Cambodia. She, she visited, uh, it was like a Christian podcast, she was visiting the Khmer Rouge uh, site, you know, where the infamous genocide happened back in the, I think it was the 80s or the 70s. And uh, her, her Cambodian guide, just in a conversation, kind of offline there, was talking about the difference between Christians in Cambodia and Christians in, in the U.S. And what this guide said to her was, you know, American Christians usually pray that suffering won't come to them. Their Cambodian counterparts pray that they'll have the spiritual strength to handle suffering when it does come. Like they expect suffering. And I would say that most of the people in the history of the world have expected suffering. And we'll all come to know it. So the Bible itself says that there's something about it which is kind of normal, at least on this side of eternity. Job, remember, says, man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. And I want to read a little bit now from Romans 8, uh, chapter 8, just a couple of chapters later in the epistle that we're studying this morning. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, notice how he just assumes that suffering is part of our existence. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But he doesn't give us an option of, oh, you're a person who doesn't have suffering? It's just the suffering of this present time. Maybe you go through a season where you're not, but we're all going to have it. I would say most of us here have already had it in some sense, if we define it you know, as broadly as Scripture does. There's all kinds of suffering. But note how for God's children, suffering only underscores the coming glory. And that's really the point of Romans 8, 18 and following. I want, I'm going to read now uh, Romans 8, 18 through 25, and I want you to um, either follow along or look, li just listen, but listen for how suffering and glory are linked. And ask yourself if you can see as we're reading this or hear 
what is the linkage between suffering and glory? How does one transition to the other since they're ostensibly so at odds, right? Suffering and glory. Listen for it as we read Romans 8, beginning of verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. <clears throat> for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption, from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for that, for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Did you notice the linkage? What links suffering with glory? It's hope. Hope is what transforms suffering into this confident expectation, this eager waiting for the glory that begins with the redemption of the bodies of the children of, of God and which signals the redemption of all of creation. It's a beautiful thought. Now, thirdly, the assurance of our hope. We've talked about the object of our hope. We've talked about the power of hope to redeem and reframe even suffering. But how can we know? Let's talk about the assurance of our hope. And to do that, I want to read the rest of our text in Romans 5. Let's begin in verse 5 now. Romans 5, we'll begin in verse 5. And, and conclude uh, in, in verse 11. He says in verse 5 of Romans 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though, for perhaps, a good reason, uh, though, for, uh, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved, from, uh, saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Okay, so what he's saying here is that we can safely build our lives on this hope. Hope, verse 5, does not put us to shame. It doesn't let us down. Well, why doesn't it? What assures us that our hope is not wishful thinking or some, you know, pipe dream? The answer is God's love. Isn't that always the answer? It seems like every week. Makes sense if God is love. And he's the one with whom we ultimately have to do. And First John says he is love. It kind of makes sense that everything would come back to love. And guess what? That's kind of what everything in this text hangs on. That's how we can know. God's love, he pours it out into our hearts. Verse 5, the first half says, hope doesn't put us to shame. In other words, you can bank on it. You can count on it. 
It won't let you down. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into your hearts, Christians. And God has done this in at least three ways. First of all, obviously, his death on the cross. That's what verses 6 through 9 are all about. He didn't wait on us to get our act together. That's the whole point of the good news. It's not good news. It's just one more bootstraps theology. Uh, you know, that's, that's what uh, Jake's talk was about. You know, flip, uh, Ephesians 2, yes, he wants us to do good works, but that's not the key that unlocks the cuffs, to use Jake's. That was an awesome analogy, by the way. I'll have that one forever. That alone was worth the price of admission, which was zero, right? Just click, click, and join. Um, by the way, Zoomers, it's super nice out here. It's bizarre. I think because Daniel's got us almost in the woods now, it's really comfortable. Compare, I think it's last week and this week are next to that very first week when it was in the 70s, the most comfortable times yet. Way better than two or three weeks ago. So if you feel uh, safe, uh, you know, join us out here. If you're avoiding it from the heat, I think it's, it's actually pretty good uh, as long as we're here. All right. So Christ's death. He justified and reconciled us despite our condition by giving up his only son for us. Secondly, there's a sense in which we're saved by Christ's life. Paul does not elaborate on the meaning, his meaning here, but in verse 10, he clearly makes this point. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, if you've become a Christian and had your sins remitted when you did nothing to deserve them by the, the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, and you're already reconciled, you need to know that he still, there's some sense in which you're going to be saved by his life. And I don't know what this is referring to for sure, but I do know we have passages like Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews uh, 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 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's, he's, in, he's at the right hand of God, like daily interceding for you. Your darkest, most embarrassing, most, you hope, secret problems. Jesus knows them, and he doesn't kick you out. He's, he's, he's making the case based on, and it's a rock-solid case, his righteousness offered in your stead. He's interceding for you while he lives. He can save you to the uttermost because he always lives to intercede for you. Isn't that amazing? So he saves us by his life as well. And then thirdly, the gift of God's very spirit, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5 again. I'll read the second half of the verse 2 now, as well now. Verse 5 of Romans 5, hope doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Holy Spirit does a lot of things in the New Testament, in the Old Testament too, a lot of things. If we said, what's the work of the Holy Spirit? Have you got a couple days? You know, you can say, well, he works through the Word. Mic drop. Uh-uh. He does that, clearly. You cannot disconnect the Word from the Holy Spirit. Anybody starts saying, hey, the Holy Spirit led me to do X, and X isn't squared up with the Word of God, it's not the Holy Spirit. It might be something else, but it's not the Holy Spirit. But the Bible doesn't limit the Holy Spirit's work to that. Well, at least we can say safely that many other places we're told the Holy Spirit does something and doesn't tell us how. So I don't know how we've ever been so confident to say that. Um, he does all sorts of things in ways that are left mysterious often. The linkage causally is not always clarified. Maybe we couldn't get our minds around it if God told us. I don't know. Um, 
Holy Spirit is a, is a you know, counterintuitive, a spirit's a counterintuitive idea. I mean, this is what Nicodemus has that problem. And Jesus has to say, look, you have to look at the effects. Look at the wind. Trees are bending. What's the wind, you know, for a first century mind or ours, maybe? Uh, anyway, the Holy Spirit is real. Part of God, you know? And he is doing a thing that here is, 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 is extremely crucial. God's love, which is the assurance of this glory that's coming to us, the assurance of this hope, is poured out into your heart and my heart. How? Through the Holy Spirit that's been given us. And every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 says when we're baptized into Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We get the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two things, not just one. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid, it was always like, well, did that person know that it was for the remission of sins? I don't remember people saying, did they know that it was for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? in the text just as much, right? Very important. Um, and because there's some mysterious elements about how the Holy Spirit works, doesn't mean we shouldn't affirm heartily all the things the Bible tells us he does. One of the things he does is he pours out into our hearts the love of God. He's always there saying, I do love you. I do love you. God really, it's real. I did die for you. I know what you've done and I still love you. I know you're unlovable. I know you got a lot of baggage. I love you. I, the Holy Spirit's saying all that. The problem is we got other voices in our head, voices with quotes here. All right? Other impulses in our hearts. We have the adversary telling us, you? Redeemable? Do your peers know what you've done? How many times have you tried to fix this? You know, the voices from Satan, the adversary, often they're mouthed by our friends or something we hear on TV or on you know, social media, just eroding us. Which will we listen to? Because the Holy Spirit is in our ear pouring out the love of God. And I want to close now with Romans 8. Again, another Pauline text in the same letter, uh, a little bit before the one we read, where it's almost exactly parallel. This is Romans 8, verse 14. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The children of God are people, by definition, who are led by His Spirit. And then notice verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. In some way, communicating with our spirit. Bear witness. What does a court uh, witness do? You're testifying. They're, they're communicating something. He says that's what the Spirit does, but He's doing it in our spirits in some untold way. And what's the content of this, of this testimony, of this, you know, bearing witness? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We're His beloved children. And if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God. This is that picture in the new creation that we're going to reign with Him forever, with glorified bodies. Like, He's sharing the goods with us. He's like a father who says, yeah, come along, children. I'm building this business, but you're going to be part with, uh, with me in this, partners with me. We're going to share this together. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified. There's that suffering glorif glorification uh, linkage. And the thing that gets us out of that on the right side is hope. Really trusting, really believing God 
really believing the impulse of his spirit when he says, I love you. I've proved it in the past. I continue to prove it now. My son is interceding for you. It's all good. Live out of that hope. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Appreciate it.